Hello, my name is Hyunsung Kang and welcome to the regular podcast produced by the International Monetary Fund on an aspect of the global economic and financial system. Today we discuss the changing IMF. It's been barely a year since people were asking whether the world needed an organization like the International Monetary Fund. Against the background of global economic growth, the thinking was that policymakers had largely conquered the destructive cycles of boom and bust. So why the need for a world body to oversee the global financial system? The worst economic slump in decades changed all that, of course, but even before this recent downturn, the IMF had begun to reinvent itself. The global slump has given this process added impetus, to the point where one US publication has dubbed the organization International Monetary Fund 2.0. The debate is no longer about the need for the IMF, but how this organization can be made more effective, representative and significant. Joining me to discuss the changes at the International Monetary Fund and the challenges ahead are Jerry Rice of the IMF's External Relations Department and Marie Goulday of the Fund's European Department and Masood Ahmed of the Middle East and Central Asia Department. Jerry Rice, let me start with you. Before launching on a discussion about the changes, let's take a step back. Now, historically, the IMF, I think it's fair to say, hasn't always enjoyed the best reputation in the world. What have been the understanding, the, if you like, the misunderstandings about the organization and how have they arisen? Well, I think you're right that there has been some misunderstanding of the fund's role. The fund comes in to work when there is a problem. By definition, the fund is associated with doing difficult things, doing hard things. Economies collapsing, currencies collapsing, emergency room situations. You know, you could think of it as the doctor coming in to treat the illness. And sometimes the doctor gets the blame. The second thing I'd say is, you know, just as the fund is has been associated with crisis, um, it's not so often associated with the results of its work. If you think about growth rates in sub-Saharan Africa, average growth rates over the last 10 years, again, probably the best in history for that region. The IMF has been part of that work, and that's often uh, not well known. Which leads to my third point, which is uh, communications. I think um, the fund could have done a better job um, of communicating uh, what it has been doing in the past to engage more, to listen more, and to reach out more. It's doing that now, and I think it's the right time to do it. Uh, the world is in the midst of um, the biggest crisis uh, of our lifetimes, and the IMF is the global institution to help uh, uh, fight that crisis um, with member countries. To be fully effective, uh, that membership, those countries, need to understand what the fund is all about and, but, and but what it's doing. But let me stop you there. What about the traditional criticism that in actual fact historically the IMF has pushed for a certain policy response regardless of the nature of the crisis? I'm thinking of the criticism that it was a proponent of the Washington consensus, i.e. fiscal tightening. Do you think that, that criticism has any justification? Again, I think there's been um, a lot of misunderstanding of what the fund has been doing. I think in, in virtually every country the fund goes into, it tries to look at the conditions facing that country and uh, makes the policy 
uh, advice uh, based on that. Anne-Marie Goulder, you, you have a lot of experience here at the fund, experience covering almost two decades. You must have seen a lot of changes during your time here at the fund. Can you give me some indication, illustration of those changes that the fund has undergone? Yes, in fact, uh, the fund has changed and I think there have been actually two drivers of the change. Uh, one is simply a reaction of the institution to the really changing economic environment. Uh, relatively early in my career, we, fa we faced the uh, breakup of the former Soviet Union and the former Yugoslavia. These were uh, these were issues the fund had never dealt with. How do you deal with it with transition? Uh, so we had to quickly build up uh, expertise in how in how you would do that. Each crisis is different. So every time the fund had to start analyzing different crises, uh, come up with different policy responses. So this is one driver of change, but I think there was another driver of change. I think we also have taken a much more differentiated approach to policy making. I think we had a somewhat more um, cookie-cutter approach uh, probably early on in the history of the fund. How would you uh, characterize this cookie-cutter approach, as you would say? A cookie-cutter approach, I would say, is you think that every country functions exactly in the same way, and you think, you know, you, if you have tight fiscal and monetary policy, independent of what structures you face, eventually you will get to the best economic uh, uh, outcome. I mean, this was based on, uh, on an economic model that was developed in the fund early on in its history, and I think there has been a realization that this model was uh, was based on a world where you had very little capital flows, very little structural differentiation between countries, and certainly it was not made for, for emerging market countries. So I think taking these more, more differentiated approach at economic structures in an environment where we saw a lot of uh, strain uh, of change, especially in financial sectors, financial deepening, uh, a lot more interaction in between between countries, a huge change in in world trade, huge growth in world trade, lots of uh, more interdependence. I think this has has led us to to take a much more differentiated view as to what you should do in terms of response to economic problems in different countries. Masoud Ahmed of the Middle East and Central Asia Department, turning to you, what changes have you seen during your time at the IMF? It is a hugely more transparent organization than it was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, very little of the fund's publications, its country analysis, its analytical work was made available to people outside. Today, 80 to 90 percent of our country reports are out on the web. And that's changed not just in terms of the transparency, but in terms of the functioning of the organization. Secondly, we now focus much more on financial sector issues than 10 years ago. And that, that's simply because financial sector issues are so much more important. I think that the IMF uh, as an institution uh, did have shortcomings. And in addition to the points that uh, Jerry was raising about misunderstandings, I think the scope of our uh, lending up work, in, particularly in uh, poor countries, but also during crisis, was often cast far too wide. Uh, we tried to do in our programs 
all the things that would help a country in terms of its economic structure rather than focusing on those things that were essential for dealing with the crisis at hand. We are going to get deeper into the conversation about conditionalities as you um, started talking about. But let me take you to the question of the funding mechanism. The IMF is known, if it's known for anything, it's known for being the lender of last resort. In recent years, months, it's revamped its lending framework. Could you give some indication of those changes? We have uh, put into place a new facility which helps countries that have a very good track record of managing their economies, countries like Mexico, but they have now been hit by a global crisis. And it's a global crisis that's not of their making, but which is affecting them. To help economies like this, the fund has put into place a new facility that provides quite large amount of financing. This is the uh, flexible credit line. And the flexible credit line is essentially targeted at countries like this to enable them uh, to provide the buffer of assurance of saying they have the resources to see them through the crisis. Second change in the uh, lending facilities is that the fund's regular, what we call standby operations, have also been revamped in terms of being able to provide more money, faster, and now we are providing turnaround in some countries in weeks rather than in in months because there is a crisis, and also focusing the effort in terms of conditionality to which we'll uh, get later. Can I come back to you, Anne-Marie? Mr. Ahmed made reference to one particular facility called the Flexible Credit Line, and this is one that's been used in your region, in Mm -hmm. Poland. Could you tell me why it's important and how it's impacted Poland? Yes, I think uh, Poland is uh, actually an excellent example of uh, what the Flexible Credit Line is all about. Uh, Poland is a country that had sound policies, that had sustainable macroeconomic balances, Uh, but was faced with a crisis, and the crisis clearly came from the global financial crisis. So the question was, how, what would happen in the case the crisis were to deepen? And it was clear that Poland could face two challenges. I mean, the crisis could hit it through the real channel, uh, through a decline in exports. It could also hit it through through the financial channel. There could be uh, lower capital inflows or even capital outflows. And if there were uncertainty, there could be run-on banks. So even so, country per per se did not have any problems. It was faced with a situation that... uh, that there was uh, a perception that more money, more reserves would would strengthen would strengthen credibility in the country. So with that, uh, Poland approached the IMF as um, one of the first countries uh, for the flexible credit line. It was approved in a very short period of time, and market reactions were very positive. So it had a rein- it reinforced confidence because it was known that. If there should be a crisis, the country would not run out of power. So, and it, you can think of it like a, like a virtue circle. So far, uh, the the money has actually not been used. It is there for the country to use in case the crisis were to deepen, but it, they did not have to resort to it yet. Jerry Rice, let me turn to you. Masoud Ahmed made reference to another um, aspect of IMF lending, the concessional loans, and this is particularly relevant to low-income countries. Now, the IMF has refocused its attention on these low-income countries. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Well, the first thing I'd say is, of course, that working with the low-income countries is not new. 
for the IMF. And uh, again, if you look at uh, sub-Saharan Africa, for example, over the last decade, remarkable macroeconomic performance in terms of uh, average growth rates relative to the past. So the first thing I'd say is not new, but you're absolutely right um, that in the context of the current crisis, the fund has stepped up its efforts with the low-income countries. Um, because I think one of the biggest risks in this crisis, because it started in the advanced economies and then went to the emerging economies, the biggest risk probably was that the low-income, the poor countries, would have been forgotten. So the IMF has stepped up its effort in efforts in terms of its lending, increased its lending to these uh, low-income countries. Over the next two years, for example, it's going to be at least $6 billion in lending from the IMF to these countries. The IMF has stepped up its analysis of what needs to be done to help these poorest countries and has called for $25 billion in additional lending over this next year. I'd characterize this as the beginning of a new relationship uh, between the IMF and the, the low-income countries. A sign of that uh, might be, for example, the conference that was held earlier this year in Tanzania between the IMF and virtually every country of sub-Saharan Africa, where those countries asked the IMF to make their case to the G20 meeting in London. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. The IMF did make the case for the poorest countries at the G20 in London and therefore made sure they were not left out of the international response to the crisis. Masudame, turning back to you, a subject close to your heart because you raised it much earlier on in our conversation and it was picked up again by Jerry Rice. The subject of conditionalities. The IMF has traditionally been criticised for imposing conditions which were thought to be too onerous and wide-ranging. How has the IMF addressed these criticisms? There are always going to be some conditions associated if you want to go and borrow money. Now, what about the actual conditions then? And I, and I think there are two ways in which the fund's approach to conditionality has shifted. The first one is that we have uh, targeted very much now the concept of limiting our policy conditions to those that are critical to achieving the objectives of the country program that we are supporting. And, and that's important because it helps to ensure that the fund focuses on the areas where it has competence and where the country accepts and there is a political acceptance of the fund's role in those areas. The second uh, thing that the fund's conditionality has uh, changed uh, uh, over the last 10 years is that it is now much more driven by the objectives and benchmarks that are set by the country itself. Now, a lot of people call this country ownership, but what is this ownership in practice about? And I think the simple fact is that programs, policies that are designed in countries are much more likely to be implemented successfully than policies that are designed by others outside the country, even though both policies, both kinds of uh, policies, might be targeting the same approach. So streamlined conditionalities, greater ownership of, of programs by the countries concerned. Also, a third element of this I know is 
social protection. There's a greater emphasis on social protection. Anne-Marie Goulday, could you tell me in your region, how has this translated on the ground? A greater social protection certainly comes in, in in our policy dialogue with the countries. When we design fiscal policy, we do look at how are these fiscal measures uh, designed and on who where does the burden of fiscal adjustment fall? In Hungary, we did have to take uh, measures on the pension system uh, because pensions are a, a big part of the of the expend- fiscal expenditures. So some uh, nominal freezes of pensions did have to take place. However, we were looking at the pensions, how are they distributed, and we found that there is a a group of of pensioners with minimum pensions that would be hurt very much by the measures. So we did exempt those pensioners from from the measures that were being taken. Masoud Ahmed, if we were to look at a case of social protection, Pakistan is a very good example. Could you give us details of that program and how the social safety net was protected? Well, in the case of Pakistan, uh, what we tried to do was to make sure that as the government cut back its overall budget deficit, it did so in a way that protected the poor. And specifically, uh, we did a couple of things. One was that we uh, put into the budget a much larger allocation for spending on the poor than had been initially targeted. So rather than cut that down, that was actually increased. Second, we worked with the World Bank uh, and others to make sure that the way in which that larger amount of money was allocated to the poor would actually reach the people who were the poorest and neediest. And thirdly, and more recently, uh, we have been working with the government of Pakistan to make sure that the enormous problem that they now face of internally displaced people over two million people who have been displaced within the country because of the fighting in the in the northwest uh, part of the country, that the cost of dealing with these people, of providing them with the kind of relief that they need, is adequately reflected in the financing for the budget. And we have agreed that we will accommodate and change the budget targets because this is a huge priority for the country. Jerry Rice, can I ask you to wrap this up for me? As I indicated in my queue, it was little over a year ago that people were discussing, do we really need an IMF? That has completely changed now. There are great expectations of the IMF now in this changed economic climate. How can the IMF meet these expectations and what are the challenges ahead for this organisation? Well, I think you're right. There are great expectations and um, especially after the G20 Uh, meeting in London, which uh, in many ways placed the IMF at the centre of helping to fight the crisis. So it's a a big challenge. The fund uh, has moved, is moving very quickly. Um, $160 billion uh, have been uh, committed already in crisis lending. This is the largest uh, amount of of financing in uh, such a short period in, in the IMF's history. The fund is also moving very quickly uh, to modernize itself, reform its governance, ensure that um, it reflects the changing economic realities of the 21st century, and that its full membership feels that um, this is an institution that really belongs to them. And the third thing I would say, and I think this is really very important, is that um, the fund has the strong support of its membership in this crisis. 
The United States uh, Congress, for example, just last week uh, passed legislation that will enable $100 billion more to be contributed to the fund. But it's not just the U.S. Uh, China has contributed. Um, Brazil has contributed. Russia has contributed. The membership is expressing its support for the IMF in this crisis. If you look at the history of the IMF, it has a history of stepping up to crisis um, at different times. And working with our partners, um, we'll be working very hard to, uh, to do it this time too. Thank you, Jerry. Well, we could go on and on, but we've run out of time. I'd like to thank our contributors, Jerry Rice of the IMF's External Relations Department, Anne-Marie Gulday of the Fund's European Department, and Masoud Ahmed of the Middle East and Central Asia Department. Thank you all. Thank you.